Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, the first thing I want to say is that I'm really excited about this uh, 100 invite challenge for Easter. Um, some of you were here at the beginning where we started as a Bible study in my living room. Uh, this will be our third anniversary of having services together as a church. We had our first uh, service on Easter Sunday in 2021, and we put all that together in like two weeks right, right before Easter. Um, we had no website, we had no social media, we went for a while afterwards without that sort of thing. Um, we are a church that has grown by word of mouth. It's been organic, and that's because from the beginning, our focus was, let's just figure out how to become a faithful church. Let's build something strong and solid. Let's be the kind of church first that loves Jesus, that loves the Bible, that loves Evansville, the kind of church that has a strong family-centered community where men are free to be men and women are free to be women, where we have strong fathers and husbands and leaders and strong and godly wives and mothers and good families that are being discipled in the faith. And eventually, let's grow into the kind of church that becomes a strong place, a stronghold to care for and provide shelter for the widow and the orphan, for those who are needy. It takes a long time to build a culture like that. It takes more than three years. It takes a long time. But by God's grace, slowly but surely, that's the church that I think we are becoming. And it's sweet to see. And so I'm excited to see what God does at Easter. I'm excited to see our church continue to grow. I'm excited to see who God brings to us over the next month, couple months. This morning, we are back in the book of James. Let's turn with me in your Bibles to James, uh, if you have one. James is who? Jesus' little brother, probably. We don't know for sure, but all signs point to that, and that's the, what, what the church has more or less always believed. This is Jesus' little brother. And so what do we know about James? He's a blue-collar, rural kind of guy, right? He's a doer. He is the kind of guy who's all about action. So this morning's about action. We're going to get into it. And today we're talking about insiders versus outsiders. Okay, we're talking about finding the people or loving the people we find difficult to love, whether that's a matter of class, of race, of economics, of education, geography, whatever it is. So here's a question. How many of you have spent time in your life as an outsider, feeling like an outsider? Everybody has, I think. Maybe you were the kid who didn't quite fit in at the lunch table. Or you moved to a new school and you had to figure out how to make friends. You joined a new baseball team or a new soccer team or something. You showed up to a party or to an event and you were the person who was underdressed and you were out of your comfort zone and you felt outclassed and looked down on like you didn't belong. Or you showed up to the party or the event and you were overdressed and you felt like a fish out of water, like you didn't belong. You start a new job, you move to a new town, and you start out feeling like everybody's on the inside and you're on the outside and you don't know the jokes and you don't, you're just not part of things. You've got to find your place. Or you went through a really hard thing and nobody around you seemed to notice or care or understand. And so maybe your parents divorced or you had somebody die and you just felt like you were alone in your pain kind of as an outsider. 
Everybody's felt that way at some point in their lives, right? Here's another more important question. How many people do you make feel that way? Like you're not somebody that they can have a relationship with, that you're not somebody that they can connect with, that they feel like you look down on them for some reason, for one reason or another. Maybe you're just not generally a warm or friendly person, they just sort of feel that way because that's how you, kind of your personality. Or maybe there's a real prejudice or a real bias or a real something there, a real partiality that you have. On one level, it's natural and normal for that sort of thing to happen, right? We all tend to feel more or less comfortable with the people who are more like us, who look like us, who talk like us, who dress like us, who are from where we're from, who think like us, who believe like us. So we end up naturally dividing up along uh, those lines, right? Even interests. Well, you come to church on a Sunday morning and you find the people who like sports and you talk about the game or you find people who like boring things and you talk about whatever the boring things are. And this is just who we are, right? This was especially true in the early church. Uh, much of the New Testament is concerned with the difficulties that come from being different and all the different people being adopted into God's family and drawn into the same household together. So you've got Jew and Gentile. You've got slave and free and master. You've got male and female. You've got all kinds of distinctions, rich and poor, coming together, adopted into the family to worship Jesus together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as sons and daughters of God the Father. And these are all people who very much have, sorry, have very little in common, would have no ordinary reason to mingle together. But because of Jesus, they're drawn in together, and God says, you're family now. So what happened in the early church? The same thing that happens to us. You just sort of naturally self-segregate. You... Your class distinctions follow you into church. Your differences follow you into church. Your prejudices come with you. And that's what James is addressing in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He starts by saying, my brothers. Okay? My brothers. So we're all family. My brothers. We're all adopted into the household together, right? We're all children of God. We each have God as our father. That's easy to understand and accept. Each of us individually with our relationship with God the Father. But there's another dynamic, and that if we all have God as our Father, that means that we have each other as brothers and sisters. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, so he's just talking about sitting together in church, right? And he's talking about more than that too, of course. He's using where we sit in church as a placeholder for all the subtle ways we signal who's acceptable and who's not, who's in and who's not, who's welcome and who's not. So here's a question. If, if in your family, at the family dinner table, 
what would happen if you sort of sorted all the kids by the ones that you like the most? So like, Geneva, come sit by me. Peter, you're at the end of the table because I don't like you very much. But at least you're not in the garage with Ian. So <laughs> what if all the kids were always competing to see who could like sit closest to mom and dad? Sometimes that happens anyway, right? But it's ridiculous because the family table is not about showing who's best. It's about coming together and enjoying each other as a family, right? When we come together to worship, do we come together to show off, to set ourselves apart, to signal our wealth and our status, or do we come together to worship Jesus as one? The beauty of the good news is that before God, all of us, rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, are all sinners who need Jesus, and God doesn't make a distinction about that. And all of us can come to Jesus. And all of us can have our sins washed away and be adopted into God's family and be God's sons and daughters and have each other as family and inherit eternal life. And God doesn't make a distinction about that either. The only distinction God really makes is, are you in the family or not? Do you belong to Jesus or don't you? So when we come together as a church, it's part of what we should be celebrating. Whatever our status was or is in the world and here, we are all one in Jesus. When you walk in the doors of the church, it doesn't matter how much you make. It doesn't matter what part of town you're from. It doesn't even matter if you're from Kentucky. Like, it just doesn't matter. In families, we can, like, joke with each other, right? And it's okay. Okay, just checking. In the church, you're welcome. You're home. And you should feel that way. And if we as a church embrace that, we confess the gospel of Jesus to one another. To the degree that we confess that, that's the degree to which we confess the gospel, the good news that we are all one in Jesus. And if we deny that and show partiality, we deny the gospel. The New Testament church struggled with this sort of thing in all kinds of big ways. And we see that all over and over and over again throughout the different letters of the New Testament. So the church at Corinth, when they came to celebrate the Lord's table, the way that it would work is you would bring your own food, you'd bring your own bread, and you'd bring your own wine. So you know what was happening in Corinth? In Corinth, the rich were bringing these big spreads, and they were feasting and getting drunk. And the poor were going hungry. And that's how they were celebrating the Lord's table. And Paul said, that's not the Lord's table. That's a, that profanes the Lord's table. That's evil. He had a right to talk to, to write them about that. Uh, the church at Galatia was infiltrated with people who taught that Gentiles were second-class citizens. In order to be a true Christian, you had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You had to adopt the law of Moses. And Paul wrote and said, no, that's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It was such a big deal that even Peter got caught up in this sort of thing where there was a point in time where he would mingle with the Gentiles and he would eat with the Gentiles and then some people came and there was pressure there for one reason or another and Peter separated himself and would only eat with the Jews. And Paul rebuked him to his face for it. And what he said is, your conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
Paul fought for the unity of believers across all lines. That passage where he talks about that is the passage that leads into one of the more famous passages of Scripture that goes like this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. What he's saying is when it comes to the status of your soul before God, male, female, Jew, Greek, all these distinctions you're trying to make mean nothing. They mean nothing. If you've been baptized, if you're in Christ, if you believe, you belong to Jesus, you're part of the family, and the full inheritance is yours. You are sons of God. It's actually really important that he says sons of God there, right? Because it's about the inheritance, and that's why he says neither male nor female. In a sense, Every woman here is a son of God. What that means is you inherit the promises too. In the family of God, we're all on a level playing field. The distinctions this world makes no longer apply. It's a family. How many of you, when you go out to dinner with family, fight over the bill still, (laughs) one way or another? Why do you do that? Because it's family and we take care of each other, right? and you work to take care of each other. Out there in the world, we're constantly judging each other and signaling status, though. Oh, he's from Newburgh. She's from the West Side. Oh, he went to Bossy. Oh, she went to Memorial. She drives a Tesla, he wears a Rolex. He went to USI, she went to Purdue. He didn't go to college. What kind of job do you have? So white collar or blue collar, how much land do you own? All these things that we use to judge each other. And we all have that tendency in us, a tendency to look down on people who are different than us and to make them lesser than us in one way or another. And even though that tends to run in the, dire- in the direction of looking down on people who are poorer than you, it really does run both directions, doesn't it? I've known a lot of blue-collar people, a lot of blue-collar people in my family who have a lot of sophisticated ways of looking down on people who are white-collar, right? Doesn't know what to do with his hands, doesn't know how to fix his car, doesn't know. It's helpless, stupid. We all have our ways of looking down on people, of trying to establish our own glory, our own superiority. But James says, Jesus is the Lord of glory. And all the glory of man, the best we have to offer, our bank accounts, our cars, our big homes, they're nothing next to Jesus. Neither, by the way, is our poverty or our hardship or our pain. When we come together to worship, it's to uh, worship Jesus. It's to forget ourselves. Why? Because Jesus is the king of heaven. He's the Lord of glory. And everything on heaven, in heaven and on earth is his. He left it all behind. He became a baby. He was born in a barn to a poor rural blue-collar family. Lived his whole life in poverty and suffered. And there's no pain he didn't endure for our sakes. So, what? So no matter how rich we are, we have nothing compared to him. And no matter how poor we are, in him we have everything. Listen, my beloved brothers, continuing in James. He's coming back. My beloved brothers, brothers, family who are loved by God, 
all of us. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In the economy of God's kingdom, there's no preference, except there is a little bit. If there is preference in the kingdom of God, which way does it run? God tends to gravitate to the low, to the poor, to the meek, to the humble. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus was rich, and for our sakes he became poor. And those who are poor and who suffer and who are humble tend to be closer to God, at least closer to God than the rich and the proud who have no need for God in this life, than the elite who seek power and use that power to oppress the people of God. It's a common theme in Scripture. It's a common theme in the history of the church. And that's not to say that the poor can't be proud and that the rich can't be humble. But there are tendencies among us, right? But wherever we fit socioeconomically, we're each responsible to be humble, to be meek, and to use the resources God has given us to be a blessing to those less fortunate than we are. It's not that poverty is a good in and of itself. It's that we all ought to be like Jesus and move to those who have needs greater than ours. It's that like Jesus, we ought to be oriented to serve and to help those who are less fortunate than us. It's not that the poor, being poor is a good in and of itself, but it's that we move to the poor so they don't stay that way. If we're concerned about ourselves, we're looking to get ahead, we're looking up, we're grasping for ways to climb. And we'll climb on each other's backs to make it. But that's not Jesus, and it should not be us, not in the church. In the church, we look out for each other, we consider others better than ourselves, we find ways to reach down and raise each other up as any of us have need. Some of us are rich in dollars, others in faith. We use what we have to serve one another. When we look at each other, then we have to see more than bank accounts and status signals. We have to see human beings made in God's image. And when we look at ourselves, we have to ask the same kinds of questions. Who cares if you are rich in dollars but poor in faith? Wouldn't you rather be rich in faith your treasure here is not going to last, but treasure in heaven is forever. We tend to look to the outside, but God looks at the heart. We tend to look for opportunities when we see people. God doesn't see opportunities. God sees people made in his image. We ought to have eyes more like Jesus. If you look at externals alone, you're going to miss Jesus. Everyone else did when he walked the earth. The rich did, the elite did, the religious did. The only people who recognized Jesus when he came were who? The poor and the needy. The afflicted. So are you humble? When you come to church, do you see people as opportunities or do you see Jesus in each person? When God looks at you, do you think he cares more about whether you're rich in dollars or rich in faith? 
If you're rich in money or rich in love. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is. You remember what he said, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. That's the whole law. The law of liberty, James calls it. That's everything. So when you show partiality towards somebody... What's the orientation of your heart? What's your mindset? Is it love? Are you out to give or are you out to take? Because love gives. If you're out for yourself with a, what can you do for me or what can you give me or how can you help me get what I want mindset, that's not love. When we think that way, we make judgments about people based on what they have to offer us. We see opportunities instead of people. Love's out to give, though. It's out to serve. Love says, God has blessed me so much, I want to be a blessing to others. Who can I serve and how? I'm here to give. And where does it start? It starts with our neighbor, he says. The idea of our neighbor is what? It's that love starts closest to home and it radiates out. It means it starts with your family, it starts with your husband or your wife and your kids, and it continues to radiate out from that. Some people jump over their families and make a show of loving the poor and the needy, and they do that to justify their neglect of their families. A lot of pastors spend their time serving the church and neglecting their families. A lot of missionaries and ministry leaders are actually driven by their failure to love their family, and that's why they're hair is on fire for the lost or the needy or the poor. It's not what I'm talking about. Love doesn't neglect your family. There are also a lot of people who sort of selfishly circle the wagons and focus so much on their family and neglect their neighbors because they just haven't figured out how to love their families perfectly yet, so how can they love anybody else? And that's not love either. It's not even loving your family. Not what I'm talking about. Love can't be contained like that. Love spreads, love grows. We're talking about loving our families and loving our neighbors, loving the people we live and work alongside and loving the poor and needy of this community and neglecting nobody along the way. Loving as we have been loved, generously, freely, and openly. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keep, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery has also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so here's what he's saying. There are some sins that are such a part of our lives, what we tend to do is we excuse them and look over them and treat them like they're no big deal. And partiality is one of those sins. Our prejudices are one of those sins. 
And James says to show partiality is to sin, it's to break the law. If you don't commit adultery and you don't commit murder, but you do show partiality, have you broken the law? You have, and you're guilty of the whole of it. So he's saying, don't treat this like a light thing. Don't treat this as something that you can just sort of like, oh, well, you know, some sins, there's some sins and there are other sins. This is just one of the sins that I'm sort of stuck with and don't want to deal with. He's saying you can't treat it lightly. It's not a small thing. It's not something you can brush aside and say, that's no big deal. It's a big deal. All godliness matters, and it's essential that in the family of God, we treat everyone as family. If we can't show that kind of basic love and mercy to the weak or the poor among us, he says, then our judgment will be without mercy. If we excuse this sin, we're guilty of the whole law. That's heavy. We're denying the gospel. That's heavy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So we have to have a heart that's oriented toward compassion and mercy and love. How do we do that? Well, to show mercy and to have a heart of mercy, you have to first know mercy, right? You have to remind yourself of the mercy that you know. The good news is that Jesus came down from heaven. He stooped to us in our sin, in our low, sinful, imperfect, law-breaking state. And he said, I'll take your sin on my shoulders I will bear your guilt. I will take the punishment you deserve. I will bear the judgment that you deserve, and I will give you mercy and forgiveness. If you've been forgiven, if you've known the grace and mercy of Jesus, that ought to soften your heart. Because you know in the grand scheme of things, you don't really deserve anything. Nothing but the wrath of God. And instead, you've been given everything, and the kingdom of heaven is yours. You've been forgiven much. The more you understand how much you've been forgiven, the easier it is to love. Jesus says those who have been forgiven much, love much. So what does it say then if you're merciless to the weak and needy? It says that you don't know mercy. Or maybe you have, but you've forgotten. You've gotten out of touch with your own weakness and neediness. But remember the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you have to be poor to be poor in spirit? No. No, you just need to recognize the poverty of your soul before a holy God and own it, whether you're rich or poor. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you have to have a hard life to see your sin and mourn over it? No. But you have to see it and mourn over it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you have to start low to get low? You don't. You don't, but you have to be low. You have to be humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you have to be hungry and thirsty for bread and water to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness? No, but you have to hunger and thirst after it. You have to long and crave to be more like Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you're poor in spirit and you mourn over your sin and you're humble before God and you long to be like Jesus, 
you're going to be merciful, compassionate to the low and the weak and the needy because that is what you are. The richest king of this world is nothing more than a beggar before God. So mercy and compassion. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's what we're celebrating as we come to the Lord's table. We all sat under God's judgment. We're born under it, we live under it, and we die under it unless and until we come to the cross of Jesus and receive mercy. And if you've done that, you don't have any judgment to fear. You've been adopted into God's family and that makes you sons and daughters of God. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, doesn't matter where your family came from or what part of town you grew up in. If you belong to Jesus, you can be the poorest person on this planet. And you are richer by far than the mightiest of the earth. Elon Musk doesn't hold a candle to what's yours in Christ. And around you, here this morning, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters, by family who love you and care for you and want what's best for you. Do we fail each other? Yeah. Are we weak sometimes? Yeah. Do our old ways of thinking get the best of us sometimes? Yeah. But by God's grace, we are growing to love each other more and more. If you're a baptized believer, if you love his church, if you love his family, you treat all of his family as family, if you're humble and you see your sin, if you acknowledge it, if you repent of it, if you're striving to be more like Jesus, no matter how short you fall, you are a son of God and a brother or sister in Christ. And the table this morning is for you, if you come by faith. But if you're striving against his spirit with some secret sin that you cherish and won't let go of, some pride, some prejudice, some bondage to lust or your emotions, where you've stopped fighting and you've given up hope, then don't come. First be reconciled to God. This is what the Bible has to say about the table. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to stoop down to us in our sin and in our weakness. And we pray that you would be near to us and that you would give us a love for you and a love for each other. We pray that you would make this church a church that is united under the cross, where we see nothing but Jesus when we look at each other. And we pray that this church would be welcoming to those who feel like outsiders in the world, but who long to know you. Help us, Father, to be like Jesus in all that we do. And as we come to this table, purify us and cleanse our hearts from sin. In Jesus' name, amen.